Welcome to the teaching ministry of Faith Bible Church. We pray as you listen to the following message, you will be encouraged and equipped to passionately pursue Christ. For more information, please visit our website at fbcevansville.com. We begin with a brief history lesson. Some of you probably know more of this history than I do. All of us here are aware that in the 1800s, our country experienced a civil war, a war with itself, a tragedy in any instance. But of course, our country is not the first to have experienced a civil war. We won't be the last either. So if you were to rewind 200 years before America's civil war, there was what we call the English Civil War which was where really a series of conflicts that took place over the course of about a decade between the parliamentarians and the royalists. The royalists were loyal to the king, King Charles I, and then the parliamentarians. Now, we're not going to go into a great deal of complexity and detail about the English Civil War. One, because I don't know it. <laughs> Two, because it might be boring to you. Thank you, Mike. It's not boring. He's a history teacher. You have to say that, but he does believe it. But I do want to point out one outcome of the English Civil War. So when the English Civil War took place, the parliamentarians were victorious. King Charles I was beheaded. Bit of a mistake in hindsight, but he was beheaded. And then you had Oliver Cromwell come to the throne. You had the Commonwealth rather than a monarchy. Because this revolution that took place was against the monarchy itself as a monarchy in favor of a new kind of government, more representative of the people, not a democracy yet, but more of that nature. It was also against the stranglehold that the Church of England, as an arm of the monarchy, had over religious life in England. So you had the nonconformists who disagreed with the Church of England being persecuted and not able to worship freely. So the revolution was on those grounds. In some ways, I guess, similar to the American Revolution later, in some ways, but also different. Now, when Oliver Cromwell took the throne, because it was religious persecution that was being pushed against, he gave a kind of religious tolerance in England that wasn't known there before which we agree is a good thing, but we also agree comes with some unforeseen negative consequences. One of them was that during the 1640s, that's when the Commonwealth was, during the 1640s in England, there arose like weeds in a field, lots and lots of heresies. The seeds were already there, but when the tolerance was put in place, these heresies became more public. They drew greater crowds, so these kinds of Christian cults, if you will. And the way it has always been in church history, I don't know why, is that many heresies and many of the oddest types of cults focus a lot on the Holy Spirit. New revelations that come from the Spirit. That's not just a 1900s post-Pentecostalism type of thing. It's been that way throughout church history. In the days of Luther, it was that way in the 1640s. So you had religious fervor, you had a civil war that came out of it, then you have the tolerance leading to all of these odd heresies that focus on the Holy Spirit and claim the Holy Spirit's doing all kinds of bizarre things, but that only lasts for about 10 years until what we call the Restoration. And this was when Charles I's son, who'd been exiled, returned, Charles II, good name, Charles II, and he was restored as a monarch in England. After the restoration happened, 
there was, as there always is, a large cultural reaction against the tumultuous 1640s. England as a whole looked back at the 1640s and thought, we never want this to happen again. We had a civil war. We have heresies everywhere. We want everything to go back to how it was before in a real restoration. And so there was a cultural shift in attitude, basically in the whole country. And what was that shift? If you lived in England after the 1640s, which if you're a student of the Puritans, this helps you put them in context a little bit. But if you lived in England after the 1640s, then as a nation, England started to look down on anything that smelled like religious fervor or zeal because they interpreted that as possibly leading to the next civil war. And we are done with civil wars. So if something seemed extra religiously fervent, we don't like it. Instead, people wanted to have a religion that was cool, rational, and calm. Of course, another significant part of the cultural reaction to the English Civil War was a distancing away from thinking about or talking about, definitely from being excited about, anything that had to do with the Holy Spirit because there had been so many Holy Spirit-focused heresies. Just so you know, I'm not making these things up. Uh, here is a very good book that was written by a Philip Dixon, student of history. Uh, he had written Nice and Hot Disputes, which his whole book, it's a very academic book. I had to read it for seminary, so I wouldn't necessarily recommend it to you. You can read it if you want. But the contention of his entire book is this very thing, that in the 1640s, the Civil War resulted in this national reaction. In his book, he focuses more on how that affected discussions of the Trinity in the 1690s. But he also makes this comment along the lines of what we're talking about today. Quote, The concerns of the Restoration period affected preaching. Anything that smacked of fervor or quote-unquote enthusiasm was automatically suspect. That sort of thing had led to the Civil War. Coolness and rationality were valued. And when it comes to the Holy Spirit, this one has a few bigger words, but we'll work through it. When it comes to the Holy Spirit, here's what he has to say. The memory of the fervent pneumatology, that just means study of the Holy Spirit. That's what this class is. Yeah. The memory of the fervent pneumatology of some of the Civil War sects may well have contributed to a distancing from the Spirit. The suspicion of enthusiasm that became endemic or everywhere in English life after the Restoration was to prove the death knell for pneumatology. This is why someone we would consider so calm and reasonable like John Owen, the Puritan, if you try to read him, it's like reading an academic textbook. In his day, he was accused by many people of being an enthusiast, of being too radical the reason wasn't because he was out there being crazy. It's because he wrote a lot about the Holy Spirit. And at that time, if you wrote about the Holy Spirit or made too much of a deal of the Holy Spirit, you were like those crazy cults that arose during the Civil War time. Now, just so you know, this is part of the introduction. And this introduction is about to drag on about half the class, but that's on purpose. So don't look at the time and worry, like, when are we getting to the points? But let me just continue here. I hope you can already see how the picture we have from England in the 1600s is very similar to our experience today. 
We in our circles have not had a civil war that makes us reticent to think about or talk about the Holy Spirit, but instead what we've had is since the early 1900s, the Pentecostal and the charismatic movements. And whatever you may think about these movements, it's very difficult for anyone in any circles to deny that there have been many oddities, excesses, bizarre behaviors, all attributed to the Holy Spirit. So you probably have friends in charismatic circles. Hopefully they're in sound biblical charismatic circles because there are many of those. But there are also many of a different variety. And there's running down aisles, jumping into baptismals. We have to say things today that you wouldn't think you'd have to say, like a church service in a church that's preaching a false prosperity gospel in the middle of which all of the people start barking like dogs, that is not, despite the claim, an act of the Holy Spirit. So you can see how in our circles, those of us who have a high view of God and his word, we've had to push back against not a civil war, but Pentecostal charismatic excesses that have taken place. And if you have individuals you're friends with, or maybe in your family, my own family on my mother's side, most of them, uh, they came out of an Amish background and unfortunately went into the prosperity gospel. And so I've dealt with this. My family's dealt with this for a long time. Many of you have as well. Excesses, clear errors, and of course, all of it is attributed to the Holy Spirit. What is the consequence for people like us? Here we are having to push against oddities and errors attributed to the Holy Spirit. And we're trying not to fall off the horse on the side that the culture seems to be falling off the horse on. So we're in danger of leaning so far in the saddle that we fall off on the other side. And we become silent about the Holy Spirit. We don't want to talk too much about the Holy Spirit or think too much about the Holy Spirit or study too much about the Holy Spirit, lest we be confused with those radical crazies that we don't want to be confused with. But we end up in a position that's no, no more helpful than their position because everything that we do, as we'll see in this class, that is of any lasting value is through the work of the Holy Spirit. The Bible is not silent about the Holy Spirit. If we're silent about the Holy Spirit, it's more of a cultural matter. Think about it for yourself. When was the last time you thought about the Holy Spirit before this class? Hopefully it's this morning. Hopefully it was this week, but it might not have been. When was the last time in prayer that you prayed, let's just say, about the Holy Spirit? Can you remember the last conversation you had with a believer or an unbeliever that included the subject of the Holy Spirit? When was the last time in your journaling or your study of the Bible that you gave focused, devoted attention to the Holy Spirit? Now, we've had at Faith Bible Church, two classes on the Holy Spirit in the last decade, I suppose. The first one was Keith Carter taught a class, maybe it was by John Owen's book on the Holy Spirit upstairs. Then, of course, Bo taught a class on the Holy Spirit for us and is teaching a men's breakfast on the Holy Spirit here coming up. But for most of us individually, the Holy Spirit doesn't feature prominently in our lives. We become kind of like those disciples that Paul found when he went to Ephesus, if you remember. And, he's, and he asked those disciples, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we haven't even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And so we can become in our more reformed high view of scripture circles. It almost seems like there's not a Holy Spirit practically in the way that we think and live our lives. 
That is why we have this class. That's why we had Bo's class. That's why we have this class, is to correct an error like that, which is very serious. John 6, 63 has Jesus saying, it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. So you have the spirit within you and you have the flesh within you. If you are not consciously, actively engaged in living by the spirit, then how are you living? <laughs> There's only another option and it is the flesh. And what Jesus says about that is the flesh is no hope at all, no help at all. And you may find, and I can't diagnose this for every one of you, but you may find that at this stage of your Christian walk, you're lethargic. Maybe you're very dissatisfied. You feel like surely there is more. Maybe you're just feeling like you're not progressing that much as a Christian, like you're even going backwards. It's hard to see. Am I even proceeding forward? Now, there could be a variety of reasons for that. Like maybe you're just not seeing yourself clearly. So ask some friends to help you with that. But one of the reasons could very easily be that you've made much too little of the Holy Spirit. Hence why we have a class like this, and that you're trying to push forward in the flesh, which is not helpful. Galatians is going to say, the book that we're studying for the sermon, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected in the flesh? And the answer is no. When we get there, you'll know. It's no. You can't be perfected in the flesh, only by the Spirit. This kind of restlessness that we have in our lives of wanting to grow, whatever the reasons, sometimes it leads us to feel like, oh, if only I could find that secret spark. You look back on your Christian life and you think of times when you really burst into growth, and maybe it was because of a new friendship or a new Bible study you were at or a camp or a conference or a something. And so you start looking for that kind of experience again. Maybe I'm just missing the perfect sermon or the perfect quiet time, or maybe I just need a perfect person to show up in my life and help me to move forward. Maybe if I could just read the perfect book, go to the perfect Christian camp, go to the, an excellent conference, it'll reignite for me my zeal for Christ. Now, Christ uses all of those things, or I should say the Holy Spirit can use all or any of those things, but you have never been lit on fire for Christ by a conference. You never have. It's never been the doing of the conference. It's never been by a sermon I've preached, just the sermon itself. Never. It has always been the work of the Holy Spirit through those things. If we don't make that clear in our minds, we end up looking for the things themselves as if those can help us. And we're looking for that magical spark. Even in a church, we're looking for the perfect church culture that's going to really set us on fire. We're looking for the exact method, the exact hierarchy and structure and ministry that's really going to light us up. No. <laughs> no. Apart from the Spirit, nothing. Nothing. No. With the Spirit active, it could be any of those things. But it is the Holy Spirit. That's one of the dangers for us if we don't fight against our temptation to overreact and minimize the work and power of the Holy Spirit here among us. Is we might get a lot done, but it won't be by the Holy Spirit. There are ways, and you know this. I mean, you could do this better than I could do this. I'm probably not good at this, but there are ways that we could get people through the doors in this church. We could really grow this church. There are books out there that will tell you how. I could become like a CEO, and we could just do the things, meet the felt needs, and we really could 
If we had to, we could grow this church numerically. You can do it. You don't even need the Holy Spirit to do it. Because the, some of the many of the largest churches in our country don't have the Holy Spirit. They are run by, fueled by false gospels. Holy Spirit's not there. And yet they're filling stadiums. So there are ways that in the flesh we could grow our church numerically and get people excited. But we don't want to do that. It would be such a waste of our lives. There would be no lasting fruit. It'd all be burnt up in the judgment. It would mean nothing. So we have to, in our circles especially, post-English Civil War as we are, so to speak, we really have to make it a point to renew our meditations on the Holy Spirit. You can't think that, well, just being here, I'll just naturally be thinking about the Spirit and attributing all good to Him. Probably not, given our context. If you were in a more like a charismatic church, probably, maybe, <laughs> probably not here unless we make it a point to be biblical in this area, no matter what the feelings of culture may be for us. So that's my introduction, as you can see. I took us through half of the class, but I warned you that it would. I make that introduction because I want to make it really clear that this class, it is pneumatology. It is a study of the Holy Spirit. But if it is cool and rational, it has failed. That is not the goal of this class. The goal of this class is for us on a living and personal level to become more aware of the work and power of the Holy Spirit, to pray for the Spirit to fill us more deeply and to work more actively in us and through us, to be more aware when He does that, to express gratitude to Him, to walk by the Spirit, not to grieve the Spirit, not to quench the Spirit, to make the Spirit a more aware part of our everyday life. That's the goal of this class, not bullet points, although we'll have those, but it is instead transformation for us and even for us as a local church as well. Here's the watchword of our class. Not by might, nor by power, but by my Spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Zechariah 4.6. All right. There's my appeal for the class and for us. All that remains really in this class today is to set the stage by giving you a biblical backing for everything I just told you. <laughs> so you don't just take it as my word. Because, you know, what if I'm exaggerating? What if I'm hyping up this idea that an awareness of the Holy Spirit in our lives is going to change everything? but I'm just doing that because I'm teaching a class and I want you to keep coming. How do you know I'm not doing that? So what I want to do now is use one scripture verse. It's John chapter 16, verse 7, and show you that in everything I've said about the Holy Spirit, I have not exaggerated, but instead I have understated the case. These are words from Jesus himself, and I'm actually going to start up in verse 5 for you. Just as a reminder, John chapter 16 takes place in the upper room discourse Jesus gave the day before he was crucified. He was with his 12. It started in chapter 13. It goes all the way to 17. It's one long discourse of Jesus revealing the future to his disciples, telling them this is what it's going to be like, but also breaking their heart by this passage right here. So let me start us up in verse 5 of chapter 16. But now I am going to him who sent me. And none of you ask me, where are you going? 
But because I've said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper, that's the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. If you're there in that upper room, you've been with Jesus for three years, you've given everything up to follow him, he's drawn you into his confidence, and here in chapters 13 through 17, he's telling you this is what you can expect for the future, persecutions are coming. And then he tells you, as you're thinking about the future, as you're excited about it, Jesus had already told them he would die, but they never believed it. Maybe it's just a metaphor. It's a parable. You know, he tells parables. He's going to die. It's a parable. But now he's making it very clear, like, no, no, no. I'm leaving. And as a disciple, if you're looking at your own track record for three years, you're thinking, there's no, no hope for us. I mean, we've just kind of fumbled along like a wet fish flopping on deck. That's what we've done this whole three years. And Jesus is the one who's kept us from going overboard. And now Jesus says, well, my time's come. I'm, tomorrow, I'm gone. Now, of course, they're deeply grieved. They love him and hopefully have some awareness, what are we going to do without him? Jesus responds to their grief. First by saying, nevertheless, I tell you the truth. And when he brings in a statement like that, it's because it's really hard to believe what he's about to say. Like when he says, truly, truly, I'm telling you the truth because you're going to think this can't be true. He's saying, no, no, no. Let me tell you before I even say it. This is absolutely true. And what is the truth he tells them? It is to your advantage that I go away. I mean, if Jesus were here in the body this morning, sitting in one of these seats, he'd be standing up here teaching. But if he was here with us, if he came, and here he is with us, it would be almost impossible for him ever to convince us, saying, well, I'm, this is my last Sunday here. Tomorrow, I'm, I'm going back to heaven. It's good to be here with you for a week and to spend time in your homes. But don't worry, it's better that I leave. <laughs> and none of us would go, oh, okay. <laughs> We'd say, how could it be better that Jesus not be with us. Our whole lives are longing for him to be with us. How could it possibly be to our advantage that he would go away? How's it better? He says, it is better because if I don't leave, I won't send the Holy Spirit to you. So the way that we can take this, here's the point for us too. It is better for you and me to have the Holy Spirit dwelling within us like he does right now, then it would be for you and me to have Jesus in his body standing right here. That's what Jesus said. See how I'm not exaggerating the significance of the Holy Spirit? <laughs> now, briefly here, just to get a feel for the weight of that statement, how much is being said, I just thought we'd imagine for a little bit how good it would be to have Jesus here in his body, okay? Because you having the Spirit's better than that. And I was just trying to think in my mind, how nice would it be to have Jesus here in his body? He has a body right now. He could be here in his body. 
it would be very nice. He's at the right hand of the Father. But imagine if he were here with us. What are some of the benefits that we would have? I think that the first benefit for all of us as Christians would be just Jesus' presence. Can you imagine having a bad day, which maybe you're having, sorry about that, and then Jesus literally hugs you? You're not having a bad day anymore. I don't know, could you be still having a bad day? It'd be very difficult. I'm talking really Jesus, okay? Not someone representing him, just really Jesus himself. And he'll hold it as long as uh, Bo Johnson does, you know? Holds it there for a while. Those arms of reassurance, just to have the presence of a physical Jesus with us, what would you pay for one of those hugs? As would I if I had it. To have the Savior who extended his hand to touch the leper in compassion, didn't have to do that, but in compassion, to have that exact same hand but now glorified extend on your difficult day when you feel sinful and unworthy to come to him and he extends that hand, puts it right here. What would you pay to have that? What kind of a reassurance would that give to you to have Jesus there? It'd be like Jonathan when he dipped his staff in the honey and he took a bite of it and it says his eyes were brightened. <laughs> That's what it would be like to have Jesus with us no matter what he did. Think about the number of times you've sunk into a depression all on your own. And even when just a Christian shows up and you talk for a little bit and it just pulls you right out of the depression you were in. Imagine if Christ himself were there. He could get you out of any funk that you are in. Just his presence. That would be good. But it's better that you have the Holy Spirit instead. You know what else would be good about having Jesus here with us in the body? Think about all the conflicts that you experience in your life among believers. And we've had many here, but you have others in your life. All the conflicts. Even across denominations and divisions, there are just lots of divisions among Christians. And we all grieve that that's the fact, but it's just the fact. That's how it is. If we had Jesus here in the body, he could just mediate those. Okay? He could take the Baptist church and the Presbyterian church and it would just take, it would take one sentence, and he would just say, no such thing as pedo-baptism. <laughs> Sorry if you're Presbyterian. <laughs> he would just say, this is my, this is my will, and it'd be the end of it, okay? Whoever's right there, I think we are, but anyway, whoever's right there, and then we could just become one church. That's it, because you can't, you're not going to go on being a church when Jesus himself told you that was wrong, right? And you could do that with every single point of disagreement, or personal disagreements you have with family members over doctrine or anything, Jesus would just clear it up. If he were literally right here, he could just clear that up. Or if you have a disagreement that's not even doctrinal, it's just he did this, she did this, he said, they said, Jesus knows what everybody said, he knows what everybody did, and he knows what everybody should have said, what they should have did. And he could just clear that up. You say sorry about this, you say sorry about this, hug, and we're done, and we're good. You could do that if Jesus were, it wouldn't be, I think Jesus thinks this, I think he thinks this. It would just be clarified. He would speak one sentence and then we would take thousands and thousands of theological books written in defense of the other position. <laughs> They'd all become doorstops, personal conflicts, all mediated, even in your own personal life as you're thinking like, maybe you have a big decision. Do I move here? Do I change my major? Am I raising my kids right? Is it going to be Okay. Is Christ pleased with how I'm doing this? This book says that, and that book says that. And Jesus could just come to you and say, do it like that. 
okay, it'd still be hard, but what confidence you'd have, all right, that's how I'm going to do it. And if I have any questions, I'll go ask Jesus, and he'll tell me. Do I force him to eat the carrots, or will that just mess him up? Do I not force him to eat it? He would just tell you which thing you do right there. You would have such a confidence, because Jesus would not just have his presence here, but truth. He'd just make very clear, spoken, truth. Finally, if Jesus were here, it'd be good because of his power. Much of my own Christian growth has happened alongside Christian brothers and sisters in keeping with Hebrews 3.13, exhort one another every day. But imagine if you weren't being exhorted by a follower of Jesus, but you were being exhorted by Jesus. <laughs> be a great exhortation. I feel like I'd be motivated to run against a whole troop, to leap over a wall. You might be afraid of doing evangelism, but don't you feel like it'd be so much easier if you just took Jesus by his hand, walked into your workplace, and said, hey, have you met Jesus? <laughs> you guys want to talk for a little bit? You know, like the Samaritan woman. You should come hear this guy. I feel like that would be a lot. Uh, you'd have a great confidence, even if you were to knock door by door, you know, and somebody slams the door in your face. No soliciting. Get out of here. You wouldn't feel so bad because there's Jesus, you know, like, we'll just go to the next door. That's fine. I think there would be such a sense of confidence if you literally had Jesus in his body with you. Of course, if you're with your family over the holidays, maybe they're all skeptics, think you're a religious zealot. You say, <laughs> would it not just be nice for Jesus to just, just like make them levitate for a little bit? <laughs> say, who's wrong now? <laughs> you know, for him to just be able to do a miracle in front of people. And then they would simply know. It would be very nice to have Jesus here. It would be good to have Jesus here in the body. One day we will be with Jesus in the body. But the fact is, as good as all of that is that I just described, it is not as good as what you already have. It is better that you have the Holy Spirit dwelling within you than that you had anything I just now described. It is better for you to have the Holy Spirit than to have Jesus himself present to hug you. Jesus said, nevertheless, it's better for me to be gone. It's to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come. But if I go, I will send him to you. When Jesus said that, it wasn't because Jesus and the Holy Spirit, like the modalists falsely teach, are just God with different masks. It's not like that. It's not like I have to be gone for him to come. Because at the baptism, the Spirit descended on him. The Father spoke. Okay. So, Technically, they could both be here at the same time, and one day will. But it had to do with the timeline of redemptive history. That is why Jesus had to leave and couldn't stay while the Spirit came. Because the way God had designed the timeline of redemptive history was that there'd be the old covenant in which the coming of the Spirit was promised. Then the Son of God would come, Jesus, in the incarnation. He would fulfill the old covenant. And it would require of him a death and a resurrection to inaugurate then a new covenant. And then he would ascend to heaven, receive from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, and from heaven would pour it down in the new covenant upon his people. That was the way God designed it to be. That's why Jesus says, if I don't go, it's not going to happen. Because God designed for me to go and then to send the Spirit down to you. So in this age that we're in, that's God's design. That's why Jesus had to leave for the Spirit to be here. This is why on Pentecost, when, this, when Jesus did that, sent the Spirit, Peter said this, 
being exalted at the right hand of God, Jesus, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, Jesus has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Or as the psalmist predicted in Ephesians 4 quotes, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts. Those are spiritual gifts to men. So the New Testament teaches Jesus ascends and then he sends the Spirit down to us. So it's better that Jesus left us. As hard of a pill as it is to swallow. But just to begin to get a feel for that, and we'll talk about this the rest of all the classes. <coughs> excuse, excuse me. Why it's good to have the Spirit. Let me just give you a preview by walking back through these three things it'd be good to have Jesus here for. For example, we would like to have Jesus' presence here in the body, but one point I didn't mention is that if Jesus were here physically in the body, you probably wouldn't see him in your lifetime. If we have so many billions of people on the planet, for Jesus to have a physical body like you or me means he's confined as a man to one place at one time. We would like to imagine he'd come with us to our workplace. Highly unlikely. The demands upon his time would be quite immense. I'd like to think maybe you'd get to shake his hand or something, but you've probably not even done that to a president. So imagine with Jesus being here, that would be difficult. So it'd be good to have him here. We could send him a letter maybe, but you know what would be better than that? To have someone not confined to any single space who could be with you indefinitely at all times in all places. Now you know that the inconvenience of being a spirit, so to speak, I guess it's just an inconvenience on our end, is that a spirit is invisible. Now that's the part we don't like so much. But you understand that if the spirit wasn't invisible, you wouldn't be able to see anything because the Spirit, as a Spirit, is in all places at one time. It requires invisibility for you even to see, because you'd just be blocked like this all the time. So while it'd be good to have a physical being with us that we could touch, it would not be possible to have one physical person with us everywhere we went at all times, closer than our inmost self, but you can have the Spirit there, and you do have the Holy Spirit. So if the good part of having Jesus here would be his presence, it would be better to have the Spirit because then you have the presence of God at all times. And he can even dwell within you, not like, you know, over here, over here, but because he is Spirit, he doesn't contradict wherever your material body is. That's why he can be within you at all times. It is better to have Jesus in the Spirit. We say, where shall I go from your Spirit? You can't go anywhere from, you could leave the physical Jesus, you cannot leave the Holy Spirit who dwells inside you. You say, okay, that's great, but what about the whole resolving conflicts thing? Because that sounded really good. <laughs> I admit that sounds really good. But again, if Jesus were here in the body, I don't think he'd have time to come mediate our conflicts, unfortunately. He'd be mediating world wars, maybe, not mediating our conflicts. It's unlikely he'd be able to be here like Moses when he was trying to mediate all the issues with the Israelites, and there were only, I don't know, 600,000 at that time. 
He's trying to mediate their conflicts, and Jethro said, you're going to wear yourself out. So he had to appoint representatives. Jesus would have to do the same here. So it's nice to think he'd mediate our conflicts. Not sure that he would. He said, well, I would just like to hear his voice, Jesus' voice. Well, here's John 16, 14. Jesus himself said, the Spirit will glorify me, for he'll take what's mine, and he'll declare it to you. You have Jesus' voice in the Scriptures. If the Holy Spirit hadn't come and Jesus hadn't sent him, you would not have a New Testament. Because he came and, as Jesus said, brought to the remembrance of the apostles and carried them along in such a way that they wrote the New Testament. Would you rather have Jesus in the body, far off somewhere mediating someone else's conflict, or have the New Testament every day available to you for reading to know what Jesus said? We would rather have that. It's better for us to have that. And the Spirit is within us, so when we read the Scripture, it's not just intellectual. He illumines it. He helps us understand it. Lastly, what about power? It would be cool to see Jesus here do a miracle. I admit that. Jesus said in the upper room, though, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Brothers and sisters, it might feel this way, but you do not need Jesus to appear in the flesh to supercharge your Christian life. You have the Holy Spirit who is already filling you with power. And it is better to have the Spirit empowering you deeply than to have Jesus in the flesh inspiring you for a moment. You might be looking for that secret, that spark. What could it be? You don't have to go anywhere for it. You don't have to go travel land and sea to go see Jesus or go find some pilgrimage, go discover something that will finally open your eyes and awaken your heart. You already have the Holy Spirit within you closer than you are to yourself, and it is His power that does that. Even if He's not always in our age doing the same miraculous deeds with the same frequency as He has done in ages past, He is changing hearts. He is awakening believers. He is helping us walk the Christian life, put sin to death, love people who are hard to love. Not as flashy, but these are acts of the Holy Spirit. It's better to have that power within us. The flesh is no help at all. This is the work of the Holy Spirit. What you need, you don't need anything else. What you need is the Holy Spirit. What you have is the Holy Spirit. We're going to see next week that the Bible teaches us that the Spirit is God. So that should make sense that we don't need more than the Spirit because the Spirit is God. But we're going to see the week after that the Spirit is a person as much as Jesus is and in such a way is personal. You can interact with him. He's not a force. He's not the force. What we're going to do in this class for the next so many weeks is consider in two weeks who the Spirit is as God and a person but for the rest of the weeks, what is his role? What has he been doing in your life? And what do you need to depend upon him to be doing in your life? If we're not going to err on the side of silence when it comes to the Spirit, what are the things uniquely that Scripture reveals the Spirit as doing? What should we be praying that he does? What should we be expecting that he does? I personally have a great hope for myself as a Christian, for you, for our local church. 
a great hope that we will be and we will do a lot more than we can naturally do. It's not just a matter of adding up the numbers, and if we're good enough, then we'll get to this level as Christians. We'll accomplish this much for the benefit of others. We'll reach this many people with the gospel. We'll see this many people come to know Christ. We'll grow to this degree. The Holy Spirit changes the entire calculation. By the power of the Holy Spirit, there is not any limit to the things that are possible. So my hope is that through this class, all of us will become convinced of that very thing and find ourselves relying entirely on it. Thank you.